Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Robin Thomas, and I'm the Executive Director at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, and I'll be moderating today's program. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all of our other programs possible. We are so grateful for your support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. Guns. There are few words that evoke such strong reactions throughout America. The right to bear arms is written into our constitution, but recently the country's been grappling with rising gun violence that claims the lives of tens of thousands of Americans every year. Today's guest, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, is on a quest to deal with why and how America continues to fall short on this critical public health issue. Senator Murphy's home state of Connecticut was changed forever by the tragic Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012. The senseless loss of life led him to dedicate his political career to the cause of reducing gun violence and ensuring that all Americans can be safe. His new book, The Violence Inside Us, Brief History of an Ongoing American Tragedy, discusses that journey and how we can forge a comprehensive plan for change in America. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube or the comments on Facebook, and they'll send them to me so we can ask them of Senator Murphy towards the second half of the program. All right, we are going to get started. Senator Murphy, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Uh, great to be with you, Robin. Thank you for your tremendous leadership and really wonderful to be with uh, uh, the Commonwealth Club community, uh, as I was mentioning to you uh, last time I got to be there in person, but uh, no less exciting to be here virtually. Agreed. I much enjoy being with you in person, but we'll take what we can get. I think the last time I saw you was at our presidential candidate forum right. in Las Vegas in October, which was really an exciting event. Um, so let's jump right into the book. Um, in the book, you talk a lot about the early parts of your political career and especially right after you elected to the Senate um, and what brought you to really have what you describe as an epiphany about gun violence. And I'd wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, uh, Liz, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And as we'll sort of find out, most of this book is really a historical um, examination of the roots of American violence and then a discussion at the end of the book about the pathways out. Um, but um, I do weave in my own personal narrative just over the last seven years throughout. Um, and I try to be as candid as I can uh, because, uh, well, you know, I was a fairly mature politician by the time that Sandy Hook happened. I had served in the state legislature of the United States Congress. I just won a seat in the United States Senate. And I think I was pretty prodigious as a legislator. I had, had a lot of bills that I had written, signed into law. Um, I admit that I felt like I was missing something. I admit that I felt like I was missing a, a moral and emotional connection to an issue that drove me to get up every single day. Um, and you know, this book is the story of my education over the last seven years with respect to America's gun violence epidemic. Um, but it's also a story about um, how I've decided to dedicate my political career to this issue of uh, America's physical safety and especially the safety of 
um, those who uh, go through the trauma of violence exposure every day. Um, the epiphany I talk about, though, in this book is not actually um, one that occurs after Sandy Hook. Um, of course, that changes my life. Um, it defines much of what I'll do for the next seven years. But the epiphany happens um, about a month and a half later. Uh, and it's sort of the story that sort of ends up sort of finding its way toward the beginning of the middle of the book. But it comes from a community center in Hartford, Connecticut. I go there to meet with the parents of victims of gun violence from the north end of Hartford in January, shortly after I'm sworn into office, a month after Sandy Hook. And the parents there are absolutely furious for good reason, right? They look at me and they say, what took you so long? Why are you here now, right? 20 young men and women had died in Hartford in 2012 before Sandy Hook took place. This has been occurring in our community forever. And now the country has woken up to gun violence after 20 white kids are killed in Newtown. And the epiphany that I had um, was that, well, the country may now be plugged into this issue. Um, it's not new. It's been happening right in my backyard, miles from where I grew up. And I wasn't working on it. Right. I felt this tremendous, overwhelming, crippling sense of grief um, and embarrassment. Uh, and so my mission has been, um, you know, yes, to uh, drive this country towards policy that will eventually mean no kids fear for their life when they walk into a school, but recognize that gun violence is a public health epidemic. Um, these kids who grow up in places like the north end of Harvard, whether they get shot or not, have their lives changed by the reality of those neighborhoods. And we've got to you know, make people understand the, the full scope of this epidemic and all of its historical, biological and societal roots. Uh, and that's what this book seeks to do. And my hope is that in the end, sort of people decide to take the journey that I did to become educated, to learn about this, and then to take some political risks, to take some life risks, to do something to change this. So many things I want to talk to you about. So I'm trying to decide where to start right now. And because you just mentioned it, and because of the moment we're in in this country, um, I do want to talk a little bit about urban gun violence, the gun violence that's happening in, in impacted communities. It ties back to a lot of parts of the book in the history where you explain why America has this sort of overly violent past that leads to a lot of violence in our present. Um, and you talk quite a bit about the types of solutions that we are now finding are so effective at reducing violence in these impacted, impoverished communities. So um, I just want to sort of open that door to talk about, you know, what is the historical reality around, um, you know, densely populated, mostly communities of color and, and what's working? Because the what's working is so inspiring. My, my work with Oakland over the last few years and, and the work they've done there with Ceasefire has absolutely transformed my sense of hope and um, excitement about what's possible. So I would love for our members and viewers to get a little more picture of how we got to this place where we have this problem and the way out that you that you show in the book that that I think is a really exciting story. Well, you can't write a book about American violence without it becoming a book about race. Um, and well, the reasons uh, that violence becomes so concentrated in lower income communities of color is multifaceted. Um, it all stems from this mechanism by which America has used race in order to maintain a racial caste system. So what's so I tell the story in the beginning of the book about this very interesting 
sort of up and down of American violence. So for the beginning of America's history, we're not an exceptionally violent place. We're very violent right around the time of the revolution, but then everything kind of settles down. And it's not until the invention of the cotton gin and the aftermath of that, which involves bringing in millions of additional enslaved people to the United States, that violence starts to spike in this country. Why? Well, because the entire economy was based on violence, right? It required epidemic levels of violence in order to keep um, a million plus people enslaved and the whole country becomes kind of anesthetized to violence. Violence rises um, just uh, between whites because violence is the way that we order our entire society. Um, And what we have seen over the years is that that violence used by whites to oppress and subjugate blacks has just changed its form, right? After slavery was abolished, then it turned into Jim Crow and lynchings uh, and all sorts of vigilante violence against African-Americans. When that was harder to pull off, it moved to the mass incarceration of African-Americans, which is just a different kind of violence. Um, And so we've seen this sort of very natural transition uh, of violence as used by in-groups to maintain dominance over outgroups. But the second thing we find over the course of both world history and American history is that there's a pretty strong correlation between poverty and violence. Um, That when you're fighting economic desperation, um, there's going to be a tendency for violence to be part of that equation. And so if you actually look at the current statistics in the United States, violence tracks poverty more closely than it tracks race. If you're a poor white person, you're just as likely to be the victim of violence if you're a poor black person. And so what you've seen is that, you know, in places like Oakland, and we did this in Hartford and New Haven for a period of time, when you concentrate resources on these communities, right, and that's what these ceasefire programs are, it's about identifying at-risk populations, and then really putting intensive resources to give those individuals a pathway, right, to prosperity that has nothing to do with violence, um, you get returns. Because if you can sort of take poverty and desperation out of the equation for these at-risk populations, then violence is much less likely. And now, as we are on the precipice of a second civil rights movement in this country, we have an opportunity to discuss that we won't really get returns on policy change unless we admit that um, that violence in all sorts of different forms, police brutality, incarceration, um, is part of a long tail of uh, American uh, racial violence. Um, and unless we sort of tackle that at its roots, um, there's no investment in Oakland or New Haven that can do the job alone. Absolutely. And I think that comment that you just made about how poverty is such a harbinger of violence is something that isn't just about you know, what's happening in impacted communities. That's that story that you tell throughout the early parts of the book about times when there is opportunity, where there is justice, violence seems to really decrease. And when there's less opportunity, scarcer resources, um, you know, less legitimacy in policing, all of a sudden you see violence climb dramatically. And that can actually uh, be seen on a, even a micro level in cities where there are acts of police brutality, you see skyrocketing um, rates of violence and decreases in crime solve rates. So it's really, a lot of that is closely tied together. And I think belies the story we're often told that these that that's too complex of a problem to solve in these communities and that it's simply just a legacy of violence. It's actually not the truth. The truth is there's this very, I wouldn't say it's simple, but relatively straightforward um, explanation and way to move 
into it. And that sort of brings me to, I thought, a really fascinating um, point you were making about policing and about the kind of policing that works. And even though it's not sort of the, the premise, the whole premise of the book, I thought in this moment, it would be such a good story to tell and I'm going to mangle it. But um, in Connecticut, there's a police chief there, O'Neill, I think, Chief O'Neill, um, who's O'Leary, O'Leary, who's doing things differently. And I didn't I had known about him and I was so um, excited to read that part of the story. Yeah, so, you know, you're right that it is not a simple story um, as to why certain parts of the country become more violent than others, but it's not an unknowable story, right? It's this it's this story that's rooted in a long-term use of violence um, in order to suppress communities of color. It's a story that's rooted in just lack of access to economic opportunity. And then it is a story about police and law enforcement legitimacy. Um, so, uh, there's a number of stories from, I'll tell the story of Waterbury, but there's a number of Baltimore stories in this book. And this book is sort of a string of stories to make larger points. Um, and, uh, I, I spent some time in Baltimore getting ready to write this book. And, uh, this woman who I'm sitting with, who had lost her son to gun violence, talks about the fact that after he was killed, um, a number of his friends came to the house and said, Hey, um, let me take care of this for you. Right. We know who did it. The police are never going to hold this person accountable. Let us just take care of it. And she never gave them that permission and they never took law into their own hands. But it speaks to the reality in urban neighborhoods today that they don't believe the police are going to actually keep them safe. They don't believe that the police are actually going to solve their crimes. And so there's an element of self-help justice, private vengeance that exists because there's not a belief in the legitimacy of the police force. In Connecticut, we had this strange sort of statistical anomaly that for a long time I couldn't really figure out. And we have sort of four or five major cities in the state. And this one city, Waterbury, that is a that is no richer or more affluent than any other cities, um, ha- had much lower rates of violent crime and homicide than Hartford, New Haven, or Bridgeport. Well, I became the state senator and then the congressman from Bridgeport and got to know this police chief who eventually became mayor. And what he did was just completely reposition the way that the police force set itself up in the city. Um, he created the police athletic league. Now, there's a lot of police athletic leagues out there, but none of them are like Waterbury. Every police officer has to have some role in the police athletic league, a coach, a mentor. Um, when you grow up in Waterbury, you know the police as the coach of your cheerleading team or the the guy who you know coaches first base at the baseball diamond. Um, and it just creates this connection between police and the community. And it's not a coincidence that in Waterbury, um, there wasn't as much self-help justice that police, people believed that the police were on their side. Um, and when that happens, you can also see this decrease in crime. There's still crime in Waterbury because there's still poverty in Waterbury. There's still racism in Waterbury. But police legitimacy, um, if you really invest in that conversation, can get you by itself some big returns on violence reduction. Absolutely. We've done a lot of work on um, building police community trust and what that means and how it impacts both sides, right? How it impacts these communities and then how it impacts law enforcement. Because when you have more police community trust, people are willing to work with police to solve crimes. There's faith, as you said, in the justice system. So there's not the same vigilantism that you see where there's no faith in law enforcement. Um, It reduces all kinds of problems in communities. So it really is um, such a crucial piece of the puzzle. Um, And this book, The Violence Inside Us, um, it really, I think, speaks to 
all aspects of the problem of gun violence. When I talk about gun violence, I often talk about how you have to be willing to peel the onion. You know, you can't just talk about it generically. There's not one kind of gun violence with one solution. There's these sort of different aspects. And you really talk about each of them, I think, really thoughtfully in the book, domestic violence, suicide, um, urban gun violence, all, you know, mass shootings, which often capture so much public attention, but actually make up a small percentage of of the violence that we see. Um, You know, you talk a lot about mental health issues, and that's something you know, we've become really thoughtful and careful about because I think this, the other side, I want to talk about the NRA for a little bit, um, has done a really good job of painting this as not an issue about guns. The NRA and gun rights activists and their sort of Republican champions want to distract us from a conversation about guns or gun regulation and have us talk about things like mental health, which of course we should be supporting those with mental health needs, but that's not what this problem is about. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the NRA. You know, in, you talk quite a bit in the book about their history, about the revolution and Harlan Carter. Um, you know, the NRA for a long time was not, didn't take the kinds of positions it takes today. And now with Wayne LaPierre, um, it's become this not just juggernaut, but really hard line organization. Um, things seem to be changing there, though. And part of that is, I think, not surprising to those of us that that know the organization. But do you think that with the NRA, like, defanged, that could have a big impact on our ability to get things done in Washington? Well, I do. And and as you mentioned, I, I do tell this very fascinating story about the NRA in the book, just so that people you know understand why the modern sort of gun rights uh, political infrastructure got the way it was. NRA starts out as a pretty sleepy pro-gun control organization. Now, they maybe worked to try to soften the edges of the bills that were passed by Congress, but they supported the state gun laws and the federal gun laws that were passed in the 20s and the 30s. And then, as you mentioned, they get taken over by a bunch of right-wing radicals who really have an agenda far beyond guns. They're sort of plugged into the national anti-government movement that comes out of the Goldwater era. They take over the NRA and they just say, from here on out, we're for no new gun laws, right? Um, Because we fundamentally believe in the illegitimacy of government to solve any of our problems. And they plug themselves into all sorts of other conservative movements. They sort of uh, overtake the other groups, uh, assert themselves in a political in a position of political primacy. Um, but over that time, there's another phenomenon that plays out that I tell the story of in this book, which is that um, the gun industry and the gun market changes. So the NRA sort of relied on gun companies to feed a lot of their money. And the gun companies sort of noticed over time, a lot fewer households were buying guns. It used to be that half of American households had a gun. Well, over time, less households had guns, and so they needed to sell a lot of guns to a smaller number of people. And so in order to sort of drive those sales, the NRA and the gun industry had to create this paranoia about government, um, that background checks was just a mechanism to get a registry so they could find your guns and come after them and confiscate them. Well, in doing sort of this radical turn to try to create this paranoia, to create this market for new gun sales, the NRA gets so far over its skis that it no longer represents its own members um, who by and large do support background checks. Um, And so when our movement gets stronger and starts to be able to go toe to toe with them, it turns out that their own members aren't willing to go where the NRA is asking them to go. And so they get to the position they are today 
um, where they just have much less impact than they ever did before. Uh, and they have much less persuasive authority over any members of Congress. Uh, so I don't know if they're going away, um, but they managed to get themselves so far out of step with their own membership that they are right now a shell of their former self in terms of political influence. Absolutely. And they're facing a lot of uh, really interesting scandals, which are not related to the book, but I think in the sense that, you know, we really um, are now dealing with an organization that doesn't operate with a lot of integrity and honesty. Um, you're, you're kind of seeing those chickens come home to roost a bit. Um, I want to sort of pivot back to the the issues that you address, I think, really thoughtfully throughout the book. Um Suicide is one that I think often doesn't get enough attention. And, uh, you know, for those watching who aren't as familiar with the numbers, with the approximately 40,000 Americans who die every year from gun violence, about two thirds of those are suicides, and it's predominantly rural white men. So people think about gun violence, and they often do think about the violence that's happening in impacted communities of color. But in fact, the majority of gun death is not happening there. Um, and you talk about the fact that suicide is a rather impulsive act at times. And with lethal means, um, there aren't a lot of uh, opportunities to get someone help if they attempt suicide with a gun. Um, so you mentioned a program that the gun stores have actually, you know, that there's a, that gun stores have gotten involved. And I've heard of medical communities getting involved, but the way in which intervention can happen with suicide um, and, and sort of the realities around suicide and, and gun violence. Um, so I'm wondering if you can explain a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I hope that there are some surprises in here for, you know, folks who are on the sort of believe themselves to be on the other side of this issue from somebody like me. Um, and so um, I, I start the section about suicide talking about this gun dealer in New Hampshire uh, who finds out one day that over the course of the last couple of weeks, three of his guns had been used in suicides. And, you know, as you would expect, that makes him feel awful. This is a guy who, you know, wasn't in the business to make himself a millionaire. He enjoyed guns. He liked selling them. But um, he was horrified to find out that people were walking into his store buying guns for the explicit purpose of killing themselves. And so he starts out of this little gun shop in New Hampshire, uh, a national program whereby um, gun store owners and their employees get educated on the signs of self-harm, the questions to ask somebody when they come into the store so that regardless of whether they pass a background or check or not, you can you know, maybe pick up on somebody who's contemplating uh, hurting themselves. And as you mentioned, this is so important because this, as I talk about in this book, um, suicidal thoughts are very strange, curious creatures, but they are fleeting. The average suicidal thought lasts 20 minutes um, from the point at which you start contemplating hurting yourself to the point at which it passes. Now, sometimes it doesn't pass after 20 minutes, but um, in those cases, access to a lethal weapon is really all that matters. Um, in suicide attempts where you try to sort of take drugs to the point of overdose, um, you're successful in killing yourself 3% of the time. If you try to kill yourself with a gun, guess what? You are successful 90% of the time. And so that access to the, to the lethal mechanism of suicide is so critically important, which is why it shouldn't surprise anybody that in states that make it a little bit harder for folks to get a gun, right, require you to go through a background check and a registration process with your local police department, 
suicides are go way down. Um, so once again, it's not about, you know, saying you can't have a gun. It's just about making people go through a little bit more of a thought process before they buy it. And when it comes to suicides, it gets a big rate of return. And you are right. The, the, the issue of guns sort of uh, and, 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 and the role of the gun and the role of gun policy in the rate is what connects suicides with accidental shootings, with domestic violence, with uh, urban homicides. But they all have different stories, too. And as you mentioned, this issue of suicides is really about rural white men who have, frankly, a different set of issues that are coming into play than occurs in a place like East Baltimore, the north end of Hartford. And recognizing the similarities and the differences in in these kind of uh, gun homicide and gun suicide epidemics is part of what the book tries to help people understand. Yeah, we in California, we have a 10 day waiting period that um, is required on new gun purchases, first time gun purchases. And that has really helped with reducing suicide, as do safe storage laws. A lot of suicides are not only impulsive, but they are commit, they are attempted with a gun that's not owned by the person. It's a friend or family member's gun. So locking guns up and securing them is a hugely impactful way to help prevent suicide. I mean, just these simple measures um, can can really help reduce numbers. That California is one of the lowest gun death rates in the country. And, and certainly the, the robust regulation we have, as well as in states like Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts, um, is certainly addressing all of these different angles that we're talking about. Um, you know, with mass shootings, and I, you know, I, I know from doing this work that that's when the issue floats to the top. You know, we, I talk, you and I talk about this every day, but for, you know, the rest of the American public, very often it's a it's a mass shooting that captures the attention. It, I think it feels very personal to people. And so, um, you know, my organization, Giffords, was founded, obviously, after um, Gabby Giffords, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, was um, shot in the head alongside um, constituents at a Congress on Your Corner event. I know you got more involved in this issue initially after Sandy Hook. Um I do believe that these mass shootings are the dominoes that are falling, that each, although, again, it's not the vast majority of shootings, each one of these um, events, you know, I think Pulse Nightclub had a huge impact on a lot of people. And there's so many and and lots of people are brought to the table um, through feeling connected to or or upset or personally touched by these events. do you think that sort of since Sandy Hook, you mentioned this in the book, but, you know, we've been watching these. I get asked this question all the time, like, you know, after Sandy Hook, I thought everything would change, that that was the moment. And it wasn't. And does that mean it's never going to happen? And I, I don't believe that. I think we're getting so close, in fact, maybe as very, very, very close to being able to see change. Um, but has that been your experience with these shootings and with how people sort of person, you know, the average person who isn't touched themselves, but we need, you know, you talk in the book, how do we activate people? How do we get them not just to care, but to do something about it? Um, Yeah, this is the, uh, in some ways, this is the toughest to talk about. And certainly for me personally, because these families in Sandy Hook have become very, very close to me. Um, I spent some time talking about um, what these shooters are not. Um, And there is sort of no evidence to suggest that this is, by and large, a problem of mental illness. Now, you would say to yourself, anybody who turns a gun on a school or a mall or a church has to be mentally ill. Well, that is not necessarily the case. 
Um, there are lots of sort of psychoses that can play out in your brain that are different than mental illness. Um, and there's no sign that America has more mental illness than any other country in the world. We have all the mass shootings. So you can't explain this phenomenon through the prism of mental illness, uh, at least not mental illness alone. I think the access to the weapon is a big part of this story. Um, I think that these young men who come up with this perverse, disgusting courage necessary to walk into a movie theater and shoot a gun is connected to their access to a weapon that makes them feel um, like a character out of a video game. I just don't know that the shooter in Las Vegas decides to do that if all he has is a handgun to shoot from the Mandalay Bay rather than the automatic weapon that he had fashioned. And so it's not coincidence that as soon as the assault weapons ban disappears, we start seeing all of these uh, shootings uh, begin. They are also copycat in nature. If you look at what most of these shooters were thinking about and doing and talking about online before they carried out their shooting, they were referencing shootings in the past. And so when they see sort of society doing nothing um, in a meaningful national way to condemn and stop these killings, um, then they sort of perceive some unintentional implied endorsement um, and they look backwards to plan for the future. Um, but if I can just finish this thought by going to the beginning of the book, because the beginning of the book talks about this strange sort of up and down of American violence over the last 100 years. Um, there are two giant dips in uh, gun violence rates in this country in the last 100 years. And not coincidentally, they occur right after the two most comprehensive anti-gun violence measures passed in the last 100 years. After the 36 and 38 law, violence plummets in the United States. And after the assault weapons ban and the Brady handgun bill, violence plummets. It is partially because those laws just operationally made it harder for people to commit crimes. But it is also because when the government at the highest levels, when the national leaders stand up and do something big and comprehensive and risky uh, to condemn violence, it sends a moral signal to the nation that actually has an effect on gun violence rates. And so that's why it's not outside of our uh, of our ability to do something about mass shootings. Um, if we stand up and pass a comprehensive anti-gun violence bill, then it'll just mean less of these assault weapons will be able to be bought. But it will also, um, I, I think, sort of end this um, implicit endorsement that we send to these shooters by watching them month after month, year after year, and doing nothing. I absolutely agree. I think following the trajectory of the marketing on a lot of these guns has been fascinating for me because you have these basically military assault weapons not ever intended for civilian use being marketed as sporting rifles you know as if you know if you're sporty this is what you buy you buy you know an AR15 and that's it just couldn't be farther from what true you know marksmanship is about um so it's just sort of a, a fascinating way in which they're playing on this story of where where guns fit um, I have a lot of questions coming in, but I have a few more that I want to get to before we turn to um, audience questions. And one is about what I have seen. Um, you address it. You touch on it a little bit in your book about Lucy McBath and some of the political changes. But you know, I've noticed, for example, in a state like Virginia, the Virginia elections, um, state elections recently, and what happened there with both Democrats and those championing. 
um, gun violence prevention getting elected. And, and with the most recent congressional um, races in 2018, a huge shift in a, this, this no longer being a third rail political issue. To me, that may be the biggest, most important statement of all about the movement that I'm seeing. Um, and from you sort of your perspective on the inside, you know, is that being reflected in the conversations you're having? So as you know, this was never a third rail political issue. The greatest success of the gun lobby was perpetuating this fraud on the American public and the political system that the issue, that the issue of guns was untouchable. And I spend some time talking about 1994 in this book because that's where it all starts from. So in, after the Democrats lose control of the House of Representatives in 1994, it becomes political conventional wisdom that one of the defining reasons for that loss was the vote on the assault weapons ban. That is helped by President Bill Clinton, who actually is one of the people who says that, oh, it was the assault weapons ban that caused us to lose the House, which was you know, sort of a way for him to make himself look heroic, that he took a tough stand and they paid the price of the polls, when in fact, it was a wildly unpopular president um, who naturally just lost a lot of seats in a midterm election. What is actually the case is that people loved the assault weapons ban in 1994. Um, it had huge public support. Ronald Reagan was its biggest proponent, begging Congress to pass it. There were a few things Congress did that was more popular than the assault weapons ban. But after 1994, it becomes this article of faith that, oh, my God, Democrats can't touch the issue of guns. It'll kill us. No, we made an enormous mistake for 20 some odd years by staying away from an issue that actually enjoyed broad public support. And then like, you know, in a, a, our own political epiphany, we finally figure out somewhere around 2016, 2018, that we had it wrong the entire time. And Lucy is this sort of perfect story, right? Because the Georgia 6th Congressional District was the obsession of the entire political class. It was the first special election after Trump's um, uh, victory. It was John Ossoff who was running. And I love John. Um, but in that race, John was told by folks to just sort of, you know, not talk too much about guns. And he didn't. And he stayed away from that issue. And he lost. Well, this is a district that Republicans had held for decades and decades and decades. Along comes Lucy McBath, an anti-gun violence advocate whose son was killed in a gun homicide, who wears this issue on her sleeve. And she runs for that same district in 2018 and just runs proudly against assault weapons for background checks um, and doesn't listen to what any of the sort of mainstream consultants tell her. And she wins that district. Why? Because she's speaking to 90% of Americans who want universal background checks, regardless of whether it's in Connecticut, California, or Georgia. And so our movement is getting stronger in part because we have just finally figured out that um, there was a myth that we were living under for a very long time. And um, when you're plugging into a place that 90% of your voters are, you can't help but win when you're running against candidates that are plugged into only 10% of voters. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in just watching from the outside, I'm not a not a Beltway insider, but seeing what's happened in the last couple of election cycles, it was very hard to find many candidates willing to run as champions of gun safety. And now it's not hard at all. I think of the 300 candidates Giffords endorsed in the last election cycle, 251. And these are champions. Um, so it has become an issue where it's a winning issue, not just a not, you know, not just not a losing issue if you talk about it, but rather a winning issue if you do. And that is exciting because I think 
hopefully that speaks to when we do have the majorities that this is this is going to be an issue we can tackle intelligently and thoughtfully as you do in the book. Um, sort of going back to some of the the things that I think it's it's helpful for people who don't know to understand. You know, the Second Amendment. I will admit, Senator Murphy, I was a little surprised when I read um, what you said about the Second Amendment. Now we're both come from the legal world in the sense of, you know, the Constitution and how it's the interpretation of the Second Amendment is, has evolved. Um, you know, when when the Heller decision in 2008 came out, uh, I don't think we were shocked at the outcome, but we were certainly disappointed. Um, but it sounds like you've made your peace with it and that you have a sense of of, of a different balance point than I think I've come to yet and many sort of doing this work have come to. And, and I think it was really interesting how you explain that part of your sort of journey on this issue. Yeah, it's part of why I think some folks will be surprised at elements of this, uh, of this book. Um, I do sort of tell the short history of the Second Amendment in this book, because in part, that's what stopped me from engaging on this issue for a long time. You know, whenever I got into an argument, you know, with a mouthy conservative uncle of mine, you know, at the Thanksgiving table, I knew he knew way more about the Second Amendment than I did. So I just avoided the topic. Well, I want people to be equipped to sort of be able to explain what it is and what it isn't. It's hard to know what it is and what it isn't, because it's the biggest sort of gobbledygook sentence in the entire constitution. Um, but um, I come to two conclusions. Um, one, which you probably agree with, that the Second Amendment itself is probably about militia maintenance. Um, it, 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 it comes at a time when the founding fathers were obsessed with um, having militias ready to stand up because they loathed the idea of a standing army, um, sort of a laughable sort of thing to think about today. Our founding fathers were dead set against America ever having a standing army. And so they really needed a militia. And so the Second Amendment is probably just about that. But having gotten ready to read this, to write this book, I spent a bunch of time with the sort of broader context of the writing of the Constitution. And I came to the conclusion that our founding fathers probably did recognize at the time a common law right to gun ownership that they likely took for granted as they were writing the Second Amendment, which may in fact be why they didn't write it explicitly into the Second Amendment. Um, and so I come to this conclusion that there is likely a constitutional right to private gun ownership, but I also tell the story about the immense amount of gun regulation that existed at the time of the Second Amendment's writing. Um, America at the time was bathed in gun regulation. You had to, you had to register your guns and your gunpowder. There were huge sections of the American public who couldn't own guns. Um, there were rules against con carrying concealed guns. And so I think our founding fathers sort of actually ended up in the place where I think most of the American public is, that they thought there was a right for people to own guns, but they thought that government had the total ability to control and regulate that right. They didn't think the government could take away all your guns, but they certainly thought the government could say what kind of guns you could own and what kind of people could own guns. And I think as, as a movement, um, if we end up in that space today, um, we'll take away you know, one of the, you know, most BS arguments of the other side, which is that, you know, all of our little nibbles around the edge are just an attempt ultimately to confiscate everybody's weapons. Uh, that's not my agenda, A, but I would argue that's not allowed under the law. 
And I don't know that I would disagree with you on that, um, but it's it's unusual to have those of us working on this issue um, find that space in the Second Amendment. It, it has oftentimes become this sort of obstacle issue. And and I often explain to people that, you know, the Heller decision did provide for an individual right. And certainly at the stage, that is what you have. That is the right you have in this country. And, and for those of us that believe in the Constitution, that's a really important acknowledgement that that right exists and, you know, how we now navigate that. And, and Scalia, in his opinion on Heller, mentions many of the things that you just did. As it, at the time of the founding and today, there's an acknowledgement that the types of weapons and who can own them, where you can carry them, those are all things that are appropriate for us to legislate and regulate to have a safer, more civil society. So I think that's a really um, important part of it. And I think being willing and your book does a great job. I strongly encourage people watching who care about this issue and who want to be empowered with the knowledge to have these conversations to, you know, I have, when I started doing this work, I had the same experience you did, Chris, where I felt like those, even, you know, people who didn't do the work on this issue, just gun rights activists in general knew so much about um, the law about the issues about guns that it was it was hard to have an intelligent conversation on my end until I really learned a lot and I think people feel intimidated by that but this book will give you the primer you need. Well, and I tell the story in this book of um, you know one example of that from my political upbringing. I tell I talk about being in Waterbury, Connecticut, the city we talked about earlier when I was in the state legislature and walking into a fair. Uh, where I was going to shake hands and campaign, the guy walks up to me and he just sort of looks at me. And he says one word. He says, guns. You know, what's your position on the Second Amendment? And I was so reticent to engage in this issue because I was sure he knew more than I did about all of this, that I gave an issue that the NRA would have been proud of. I, I said something like, oh, well, you know, all this focus on guns, we really need to talk about the person. And, you know, why did the person decide to commit the crime? And, you know, that's really where our focus should be. And like, what a what a terrible response. I should have at least tried to engage this guy to see where he was um, and argue, you know, the brief on background checks or assault weapons bans. But because I wasn't equipped with the knowledge I felt I needed, I just backed away from the argument. And 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 that's what I'm hoping this book is. It's, it's, it's a series of, I think, very interesting and compelling stories that in the end, you know, give you the ability to have that argument, you know, whether you're on the phone with a voter or at the dinner table with a relative. Um, I want this book to be able to give you that digestible argument for why violence happens in America, what to do about it, and why our side is right. Well, it definitely does that. And I and I think when I call it a primer, I mean, I think it's a really fair look. So to the extent, you know, there are arguments on the other side that we hear so often, and some of which have some merit, some of which don't, um, you speak to that. You speak to, um, you know, in your role, you know, in the Senate and before that in the Congress, what you're hearing from constituents and how that influences the conversation. And I think What's one of the things that's really powerful about the book is that you really walk away feeling like you have a comprehensive and holistic sense of the whole conversation and, and a positive outlook um, on how we can get ourselves out of this, you know, gun violence had been steady for most of the last 20 years until the last two or three years. And it's gone up quite a bit in the last two years um, from the numbers that we're seeing, um, you know, at least at least 10%, maybe more, depending on how you look at the numbers. And that that's significant. That's a lot of lives. So we're not, you know, in some states like California, Connecticut, you know, 
and others, we're seeing huge reductions and, and not the rates are not increasing. But in a lot of states, the rates are going up, up, up. And I think without federal comprehensive federal reform, it's very difficult to stop the flow of guns. Um, you know, in cities like Chicago, the guns are coming from outside of Illinois, if not out, at least out of Chicago. So comprehensive federal reforms necessary. Okay, so now I'm going to look at the many, many questions um, that I have coming in and see uh, if I can start getting to our audience. Okay, um, here's a good one. Would government investment in programs like an expanded AmeriCorps program help reduce gang and get gun and gang violence and change attitudes towards gun ownership and possible use? Well, I mean, I think any investment in poor communities is going to get you a benefit when it comes to gun violence. I mean, I think we've seen these targeted programs work very well, um, like ceasefire, where you go and identify a specific at-risk population, um, meaning, you know, basically groups of young men who have either already been involved in criminal activity or show potential signs of being involved in the future, and you put services around them. Um, I like those approaches. I talk about their success in the book, but it shouldn't be a substitute for a broader reordering of our economy. I, I mean, the fact of the matter is we just have way more poor people, way more folks who are in desperate situations today than ever before. And if you don't recognize that and how it leads to violence, um, then I don't think there's any sort of targeted programming that's going uh, uh, to make this up. This guy in Baltimore says to me, um, as I'm walking through the city, uh, he's explaining to me, you know, he's been shot something like six times himself and survived them. He says he knows the violence is getting worse. And I say, why? And he says, you ever been hungry? And I said, well, yeah, I've been hungry. He's like, no, 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 no. You ever been hungry? Now I know what he means. And I say, no, I guess I've never been hungry like that. And he says, well, Mr. Hunger, it hardens your heart. Right? It makes you do things you wouldn't do if you weren't hungry. And unless we come to grips with that in a way that's more than just a little investment here and a little investment there, unless we raise up the economic prospects of you know, communities of color and low-income communities, then um, there's no VISTA or AmeriCorps program that's going to um, solve this, this problem. We need a broad sort of re restructuring of our economy. And if we do, that'll just be the right thing to do on behalf of hardworking poor people in this country, but it'll also make America a less violent place. Yeah, I am. Um, I know when I first learned about the ceasefire programs and understood that really it's often a tiny, tiny minority of members. These are violent communities. These are communities with a tiny group of people who are driving most of the violence. Um, so if we really focus on those individuals and offer them an alternative, it can have profound effects. I was sitting at a table uh, with some of these street outreach workers once, and I made some comment about, you know, I really just believe in the value of offering these people a second chance. And um, one of the men that does the street outreach work looked at me seriously and said, you know, if only that was the case, but these are people, this is their, this is a first chance we're offering them. They've never been offered any kind of social support or opportunity or alternative path out of these neighborhoods or even into, you know, supporting themselves. So you're really offering them the first chance they've ever been given. And that really has stuck with me over the years as the, the, what we need to understand about what's happening with violence. You know, AmeriCorps, I agree, would be fantastic because bringing, you know, education and opportunities a part of it. But it's it's about offering people a legitimate chance, a pathway to, to anything but violence. 
Well, and uh, yeah, and I think, and listen, and I and I don't mean to uh, to 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 talk about those programs in, in a way that belittles the work they do. I just think that our project is much bigger. I, I mean, um, those programs sort of help the people they reach. But you know, I talk about in this book, you know, the how ridiculous it is that we view Bernie Sanders' free college proposal as radical. I mean, all Bernie Sanders is proposing is going back to the original promise of public education, right? We made a promise that we would get you enough public education in order to um, get a job that provided you with a living wage that allowed you to compete globally. And when we started our system of public education, that was 12th grade. It's not 12th grade anymore, right? You need an advanced degree, whether it's 13th, 14th, or 16th grade, you need an advanced degree. So let's just re-up that commitment that we make to people. Um, And when you compare the amount of money that it would cost to do that, um, to the amount of money that Jeff Bezos made, you know, last month, or the size of the Republican tax cuts in 2000, uh, you know, 17, um, it's peanuts. Uh, and so we, we, power and resources are not a zero sum game, um, but they are not limitless in their ability to expand to meet folks who need it. And so if you really want to give true opportunity to these communities, those that have power, those that have resources are going to have to understand that there needs to be some amount of redistribution. Um, we can't just make the pie bigger for everybody. Yeah. And, and you know, another point is just that the cost, the total of gun violence, the actual monetary cost Huge. is $229 billion a year in this country. So if Huge. you're looking at where the money can come from by reducing gun violence, some of it uh, can certainly be recouped from that. And that's, I think, a, a really important point because, you know, we, you and I, I think, come to this issue from a place of you know, passion and knowledge and and um, sort of the, the moral compass of it. But even if there's people out there, this isn't their issue, but they care about economic factors, you know, reducing gun violence is going to help this country economically. And that um, is, a, is important to acknowledge that, that it's draining us financially as well. Um, that's sort of one of the un the untalked about pieces of this is the cost it has. Um, okay, I'm going to go to another question. It says, um, I don't know if you can answer this one, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, what do Republican senators tell you privately off the record about their position on gun regulation? Great question. So it is cha- it has changed over the years. Um, there's a guy that whose name comes up in this book called John Lott, who you know. Um, John is very influential in Republican circles. He wrote a, a book years ago called More Guns, Less Crime. And through a statistical analysis that no one can understand to this day, um, he comes to the conclusion that actually the more guns you have, the less crime there is because criminals fear everybody being armed. Um, There's no data to actually back that up, but his theory, which the NRA pushed for um, decades, um, you know, became a little bit of gospel in the Republican Party. And so um, I tell the story in this book of giving one of my speeches on the floor and being called up to the to the dais where Ben Sass, a really smart but conservative senator from Nebraska, was presiding. And he says, hey, have you read John Lott? Go read John Lott. John Lott says something different than you. And it's just a sign that this propaganda that the NRA invested in for years and years and years, that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, is really believed by a lot of Republicans. Now, they're wrong, but a lot of them actually believe that to be true. Um, Over time, my conversations have changed. 
Um, some Republicans are waking up to the data um, because we've just been good at making the case that you know background checks work. Uh, others are just moved by the changing politics. Uh, this isn't in the book because it happened after I wrote it, but you know, last summer after uh, uh, the the El Paso shooting and the Dayton shooting, you know, we made a run at a background checks bill. I negotiated with the president and with other Republicans. We had a draft on the table. And the reason that I was getting phone calls during that time from Republicans saying, hey, you know what, if you could get a background checks bill to the floor of the Senate, even though I voted against it in, in 2013, I think I'd vote for it this time. It's because they recognized that they couldn't get elected if they voted against background checks, that they actually had to get on the right side of this. And so my conversations with Republicans are changing, but they're changing largely because our movement is now stronger than the gun lobby. And they actually fear us more than they fear the gun lobby for the first time in decades. And, and that's why, you know, what I learned after Sandy Hook is still true to this day. Um, politics doesn't change in this country on a dime, on a mark, at a moment. Um, you've got to build political power, which takes time. Often it takes decades. In our case, we've built a political movement that's stronger than the other side in seven years, but that's what's starting to shift conversations with my Republican colleagues. I would agree with that. I think, um, you know, we outspent them in the last election cycle. We got, we forced them to get outvoted in many cases. Um, I also just want to, before I go back to the questions from our audience, um, you know, the grassroots movement has changed a lot. And I, I wonder if you, how much you think that influences things, whether it's the March for Our Lives students, the, you know, Moms Demand Action. You're, I've seen a huge resurgence of grassroots energy around this that didn't exist before Newtown or before Parkland. No, I mean, we're the the movement now that lobs more phone calls and more emails into people's offices, right? I mean, we have the numbers all of a sudden. I, I do, and I say this in the book, I do think that, um, uh, there's no turning point in this movement, but Parkland is as close as you get. I, I mean, every great social change movement uh, in the history of this country uh, and frankly in the world um, has been led in whole or in part by young people. Um, and so once young people took a leadership role in this movement, um, we just became a whole lot more powerful because there is something magical to young people asserting their voice. Um, and so once Parkland happened and once young people threw um, you know, whether it be March for Our Lives or Students Demand Action became um, much more present, uh, we started to win a lot more hearts and minds. And so I give just a ton of credit to those kids who are speaking for themselves, right? The Newtown kids couldn't speak for themselves. Unfortunately, kids in these urban communities often don't have the means to speak for themselves. Um, but now they do because there's a structure in place that actually unites kids out of New Orleans and Chicago with kids out of Parkland or Newtown. And together, they're a, they're a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, it's one of the things uh, I was at the march in D.C. Um, and one of the things that I was so inspired by and gratified to see is that the Parkland students very quickly understood that this wasn't about mass shootings, that that even though that was there, right. what brought them to the issue, that there was this larger context and that they needed to be inclusive of the broader um, aspects of gun violence than, than mass shootings. And they brought, you know, that range of individuals and voices and issues to the table. Um, and I think it's really allowed for that to shift. You know, the 
the issue you talk about in the book around impacted communities and urban gun violence hasn't been one that's been in the conversation for that long. We've been talking about background checks for a long time. Um, I've been doing this work for 15 years and we've been talking about background checks that whole time. But, you know, looking at the drumbeat of violence in, in urban communities is a relatively newly integrated part of the conversation about gun violence. And thank goodness. And we're still and we're still not doing it right. I mean, I I tell the story in the book again is back to Baltimore of, of visiting the school. And while I'm at the school, um, there's a code green a code green at the school means there's been a shooting within a couple blocks of the school. It turns out that this dad dropped his two twin girls off at school in the morning and he went home and he got out of his car and was shot to death. And this code green is happening. The lights go down, the doors lock. And there are these two twin girls in that school who are probably giggling about the fact that school stopped for a few minutes, not knowing that they're never going to see their dad again. I was there for that whole thing. And when I got home um, a day or two later, um, I went online to do research about this because I thought, well, this is going to be a story everybody's going to be talking about. A dad drops his twin girls off and gets killed on the way home. If that had happened in suburban Connecticut um, to a white dad who dropped his kids off and got killed on the way to his insurance job, it would be on CNN headline news constantly. Nothing. I couldn't find a single article about this guy. I couldn't learn anything about it. Why? Because still, even now, we just normalize urban gun violence. We don't think it's exceptional. We think it's just what you should accept as living in these neighborhoods or going to school in a school like those girls' school. And so we still have a lot of work to do to make this country recognize that whether you're killed in a mass shooting or you're killed after you drop your kids off at a low-income school in Baltimore, a gun murder is a gun murder and the pain and the grief is all the same. Yeah, it really is. And I think um, what comes through in the book and what's been my experience as well is that it's really those individual stories. It's the numbers are so large when you're talking about 40,000 people dying or 120,000 people getting shot. It's, it's almost hard to relate to because it's so much. It's so big when you consider all the humans connected to those people who are affected by it. Um, so so focusing on the, the one person you met who had lost a loved one and the experience they had with it, it, it helps you sort of conceptualize the scope, the, the insane scope of this problem. Um, and I think that, that that's what people need to do. They need to bring it back to the individual because that's how we sort of find our place in it. Um, I wanted to just mention something else. I was I happened to be perusing the New York Times article interviewing you about the book. Um, and there was this really interesting back and forth where the reporter asks you, well, how do you how do you get across to the people who don't support background checks? You know what, why they should or why it's effective and, and your response. I loved it. So, you know, I wonder if you could sort of speak to that for our audience here. What what do you say and do you say to the people who don't support <laughs> things like background checks or assault weapon regulations or any manner of the other, you know, extreme risk protective orders that we're talking about as effective tools? You mean my kind of like indignant response to that question? So, yeah, I mean, I think my response was, why do I have to convince more people? I have 90 percent on my side. I mean, we've been told that it's our burden to, to, to just soften your rhetoric, right? Find a different way to talk about this issue. Stop being so tough, right? Um, you need to, 
to, to convince more people. I got 90% of the American public that agrees with me. Like I, I, kittens and baseball and American pie don't get 90% approval ratings. Uh, 70% of Americans now support assault weapons ban. The majority of Republican voters in the country now support assault weapons restrictions. I, I'm not saying that I, and, and I, wasn't, I, I wasn't meaning in that article to say that I don't constantly engage in trying to you know, cross these boundaries. And as I said before, part of the reason that I think we should just settle this issue over what the Second Amendment says is because I think that will help bring more people into the fold. But I also just, I'm trying to bust up this 40-year conventional wisdom around guns, right? That A, you can't touch it, and B, it's your fault because you haven't been able to convince more people of your uh, of uh, that you're right. And I just think sometimes you just have to say, you know what, I don't actually need to spend my time convincing more people. I now just need to activate more people. I just now need to spend my time making sure that more people go to the voting booth and vote on the issue of guns. I need to get more anti-gun violence advocates to run for the Board of Education and the City Council and State Representative, right? I just need to grow this movement. Um, and if I do that, and they naturally plug into the nine out of 10 people who agree with us, bam, um, I've won this issue. And I've won it in a way that the other side will never get back up off the mat. So, yeah, I was a little saucy in my response to the reporter when he said, well, why shouldn't you shouldn't you think about how you convince more people? Yeah, I always think about that. Obviously, I'm in the business of convincing more people, but that's not our problem. I couldn't agree more. And I would say also that, you know, some of that outrage, some of that righteous indignation that those students brought to the forefront was so cathartic for me because I, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I'm constantly trying to argue the facts and the, the policy and convince people. And yes, they they actually knew all the facts and policy also, but what they brought was their indignation and their outrage and the shame on you of not taking action. I also love that tweet that you sent. I know you probably, maybe, I don't, hopefully not, you know, regretted. Um, impulsively responding to the thoughts and prayers. But, you know, I think that that indignation that people are dying, this is not about, um, you know, for lack of a better word, this is not about politics. This is not about your feelings. This is about people's lives, life and death. And if we don't act, you know, shame on you. So I, I actually think a little bit of that indignation. I'm not here to make you comfortable, to make this easier for you. I'm here to wake you up if I possibly can. Um, and you're doing that. And I think that's what needs to happen. Um, okay, I'm going to look at one more. Here's one. Okay, how can we push back on the unregulated militias that show up in our streets and places like the Michigan State House with impunity? We at Giffords have been tracking what we call these sort of public brandish, you know, brandishing of firearms and how it's being used to intimidate. I fear that coming up in the election cycle, you know, in the election polling itself. Um, do you see any way that we can approach that without getting into tricky First Amendment ground? Well, I, I mean, of, of course, um, you know, there's there's not a First Amendment right to intimidate people with an assault weapon. Um, you know, just like I argue that the Second Amendment has restrictions and boundaries around it. So has historically the First Amendment. We have always accepted that there is a general right to free speech that has to be regulated, um, right? You, there's there's libel laws, there's laws against yelling you know, fire in a crowded theater. So um, there are limits to both the First and the Second Amendment. Um, and uh, state interventions can be um, uh, determinative here. I, I mean, again, 
you know, they're normally carrying these military style assault weapons. Uh, I mean, I just don't know whether these guys would be as excited about, you know, walking around as fake law enforcement if they couldn't carry assault weapons, if they could only carry pistols, it might just make, you know, the whole exercise a little bit less, um, less intriguing to them. Um, of course, open carry laws um, make it easier to do that. So you're seeing these guys marching on state capitals with weapons in states that allow for open carry. You as a state can make the decision that that's just not something that you're going to accept. And you could greatly limit where you can carry, right? You could say, you know, within a certain proximity of a protest, within a proximity of government buildings, schools. So there are plenty of public interventions that can um, try to scale this phenomenon, uh, this phenomenon back. Uh, and, you know, I think it, it needs to be part and parcel of the broader conversation we're happening, we're having. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I would only add that, um, you know, there's a lot of legislative ways that can be, this can be addressed. We can limit, you know, as I said, Scalia in his Heller decision even talks about sensitive places and the fact that we can limit firearm possession in, in sensitive places. And there's lots of these places we're seeing brandishing happening, whether it's at a rally or whether it's at a state house or whether it's at a polling place, you know, these are places where weapons are not appropriate. And the First Amendment argument, I hear it made all the time, but ultimately, um, it, it doesn't hold water. It simply doesn't. You know, the First Amendment wasn't intended to, as you said, be used for intimidation. That's why you can't yell fire in a theater because it puts people at risk. Um, so, I, you know, I think that we, we actually, it's something we should be looking at. And I'm glad that somebody raised that question, how we can deal with the way in which guns are now being even beyond the absurd amount, just quantity of, of guns and availability that it's actually being misused in public spaces. Um, and that's that's been coming up more and more and leading to some tragic outcomes. Um, OK, we are almost out of time. So I just before I close, I just want to say what an absolute pleasure it is having you in the Senate and having you as our champion and having you there um, to hold the flag. You know, the filibuster, which you talk about a bit in the book, you know, for those of us working on this issue day in, day out, it, there couldn't be have been a more profound experience of of gratitude for um, putting yourself out on the limb because it's a tough issue and, um, you know, it, re it requires you almost to feel like you're constantly out on a limb in some regards. So we are just also grateful for the work you do and for your willingness to, to not deviate from your commitment to this, to this cause and to this problem. So, um, Thank you. And thank you for writing this book. I've often thought about writing and, and when I've thought about a book on this topic, it would look very similar to what you wrote, really fleshing out the different aspects of gun violence, the solutions, the myths, how we got here, why we are in this position we are as a country. Um, and it's a really just beautifully written book. So um, congratulations for those of you watching. Um, the Violence Inside Us, A Brief History of an Ongoing American Tragedy. When is the release date, Senator Murphy? It, it just came out. So it's out this week. So it is now uh, on shelves. You can order it online at your favorite bookstore um, uh, right now. Wonderful. So for those of you watching, go order it right now. Go If you go to bookstores, do that, or you can get it delivered or curbside pickup, whatever suits you. Um, thank you for joining us tonight. And we want to thank our audience, as always, for watching, for participating, for asking questions. If you want to watch more programs, go to the commonwealthclub.org slash 
online. Um, and please support our efforts. These are strange and difficult times and having this kind of conversation and discourse, educating each other is more crucial than ever. So please support the Commonwealth Club um, by Senator Murphy's incredible book. I'm Robin Thomas, Executive Director at the Giffords Law Center. Thank you so much to everyone and please stay safe. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.